And unfortunately, all things must come to an end. With Diatomy by Printed Circuit in the background, you're listening to the conclusion of Freeform with DJ Electronica for this week. Before the song that you are hearing now in the background, there was Recliner Classic by Slick60, Sherry by David Castle, Traveling the Highway Home, then Oh I Like It by Johnny L, Lock Lamont by Nuija Mehet, and Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis by Guy Lombardo. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this music as much as I have enjoyed putting it on for you this afternoon. Everyone, please have a good rest of your afternoon and have your and have a safe drive back to your house in the evening. Well, I have enough time to fit in one more song before the Living Writers Show. It'll be by Bad Marsh and Shree. It is called Jit Loop. Please stay tuned for the Living Writers Show, which will begin in about two point six minutes. <laughs> okay. Without any further ado, here is Bod Martian Shree. Have a good day, everyone. Goodbye. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Thomas H. Cook. His book, M- Master of the Delta, uh, he's in town. Uh, I should mention this is a pre taped show, June 16th. I'm so happy to have you here, Tom. Thank you very Tom, much. I'm, for it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's, it's great to see you. you. And, um, and you're, you're coming to town. You'll be reading at Aunt Agatha's Mystery Bookstore. Um, yes. And so have you, have you read there before, Tom? Because I, I noticed you've got a huge 
tour lined up. You're going to be on the road for quite a while, hitting mystery bookshops across the country. Yeah, I should be quite scruffy by the time I, I get home. I, I noticed it today in the mirror. I didn't look quite as uh, sharp as I as I had before because you can't bring scissors onto a plane anymore. So oh, right. that's a problem. But yeah, we're doing. I've just finished the southern swing of the tour, which was through Mississippi and Alabama. And now we're th- into Michigan, and we'll be going down to St. Louis, uh, Dayton, Houston, Memphis, and then out to the west, Seattle, Phoenix. Los Angeles, Seattle, all around. Yeah, Seattle in July, I yep. noticed, right? And at, at the mystery bookshop there mm-hmm. as well. Um, and you were saying earlier that your voice might carry a bit more of a southern twang because you're just coming off the that part of that leg of the tour. Well, it's pretty bad because I called my wife last night and she didn't recognize uh, my voice. I, I am southern. <laughs> I was born in Alabama. And, uh, and so when I'm down there, yeah, it becomes really, really thick after a while. And it takes me a while to, uh, for it to sort of drop away when I'm when I go back up north but once you're there you just kind of step step into it oh absolutely I mean if I have a long conversation with one of my southern friends my by the time I get off the phone I have a I have a much thicker southern accent than when I started the conversation is there, is there has there ever been a time Tom when you um you you were sort of your because you 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 live in New York City and also Cape Cod, mm-hmm. so um, when you were up there, and but you actually just had one of the colloquial colloquialisms from the South kind of come through, but you said it in your non-Southern. You must voice. be in- intuitive with stories because uh, I actually have have one. I went into a store, uh, a little deli, one of those little dugout delis that they have in New York City, very very small. And uh, because I was a bachelor at that time, and I had to cook my own sort of lunches, and I would make uh, these little weenie things and, and pork and beans. I'd make it for a week. That's what I would have the entire week. But I went in to buy these things that I used to make when I was in college, and I said, do you have any uh, Vienna sausage? And the guy looked at me, no. And I said, well, yeah, you do. They're, you know, they're right over there. And I pointed to them, and of course, that was Vienna sausage. Vienna. So I said to him, is that the worst you've ever had? And he said, no, 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 no. A guy came in the other day and he said, could you have any Dracus caucus? And he said, what? And he said, Dracus caucus. And he said, no, I don't have that. And he said, Drake's Cakes. It was a Greek guy. <laughs> oh, that's great. New York City. Nothing like it. <laughs> that's what happens. Um, okay. Well, Tom, before we go any further, I'll just read the bio in the back of um, your latest novel. And you've since the 80s, you've been having, you're prolific. You're a prolific man. Okay, Master of the Delta, a novel. Thomas H. Cook is the author of 21 novels and two works of nonfiction. He has been nominated for the Edgar Award seven times in five different categories, including Best Novel for Red Leaves, which was also nominated for the British Crime Writers Association's Duncan Laurie Dagger and won the Barry for Best Novel. The Chatham School Affair won the Edgar for Best Novel. He lives in New York City and Cape Cod. But still has the South in his heart. Very much. And in, and in many of my novels, still. My Master of the Delta is set oh, in the South. Mississippi. Mississippi. 1954. 1954. Yes. yes. <laughs> so what was the reception like when you were, when you were down? Because you were... Uh, just coming from there, you said it was very. It was very nice in Mississippi. Uh, of course, tours are tours are odd in in the sense that uh, the the appearance dates when they when they occur are sometimes a bit arbitrary and that sort of thing. You can never be sure that you're going to get a crowd unless you're a really really famous writer. But um, I. You go to the independent bookstores because they stay alive to some degree because they have these wonderful book clubs. 
and you go and you may sign several hundred books. There may not be many people at an appearance. There was there were some, but not a great crowd until I really got to Birmingham. Uh, but you still you still is Alabama, right? And uh, that was pretty much made up of family. <laughs> I, yeah, but it didn't matter to the bookseller because he was selling books anyway. So it didn't matter they were my cousins and my aunts. But I actually drew a crowd. It was very exciting. But you, you do sign a lot of books for the clubs, and the clubs are very important because they get so many books out, and they get them in the hands of readers and readers who then recommend and, uh, a book to a friend. And, and there are book clubs, Tom, that are specific to mystery, like oh, sort of their mystery book, book clubs. Yes, uh, the independent mystery booksellers really have a, uh, a mystery book club, and they will sometimes pick a book for that month or that week, and that goes out to their entire list. And these are autographed copies, and so they want you to come in and sign those books. So even though there might be eight or nine people actually show up at a reading, you may sign 150 to 200 books. So the reach is much, much It's much, much further. That. And, of course, they do want them to recommend them because I happen to, I happen to believe in the old school that uh, it, it really is recommendations that that make a book. And so is there is there a a community of people because it seems like you're go- you're going across the country and as you said like there's the the book groups and and the booksellers seem to almost have like an informal community where they they network with each other perhaps like especially in the present economy with like all the 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 big conglomerate book stores they they have a tendency to have a more intimate relationship with their with their customers in the sense that uh, their recommendations are not staff recommendations in the sense that they're just a big a big board that says what books they're recommending but because they've had these customers over many years they actually know what a what a customer likes and although they might like a different book they might not even necessarily recommend recommend a book they like. They're really look, recommending a book that they think that customer would like. It's a little like going to a, into a wine store. If you go into a different wine store every day, then no one can recommend wine to you because they don't know right. what you like. Right. They can say what they like. Sure. They can tell you. Yeah. Do you recognize any of the people, Tom? Because then I imagine you've been on many a book tour um, throughout the career so far. And so is it sort of when you're coming into these different towns, do you recognize some of the, the, the same people in these uh, in the communities? Oh, sure. In some of the communities, you've you've gotten to know them, and you you've gotten to know them because you've appeared at the store. But you've also gotten to know them because they often uh, they often go to Bowser Khan and places like that. Bowser Khan is a unlike uh, Mystery Writers of America, which is really an organization of mystery writers uh, for the most part. They do have affiliate membership, but it is primarily writers and people in the professionally in the business, editors and everything everything like that. Bowser Khan is really a, 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 a convention of fans. And uh, they meet at a different place every year. I don't go every year, but uh, but it, it's always a lot of lot of fun. And you get to know the booksellers there too, because they come, they have booths and and all that sort of thing. So you learn you learn who the booksellers are and. Uh, Houston and, and you know that sort of thing and then give perhaps like one of the days you'd give a reading or, or so or so, do some signings or a Q&A you do signings and uh, they have panels and so they'll come up with a subject and uh, they'll have three or four or five writers on that panel and they'll discuss one issue it might be a creative issue of it might be as simple as uh, Poison versus versus pistols or something oh, something great. like that, which I'm never a part of because I don't write that you know that usually that kind of mystery. But they might uh, they might uh, just have thematically talk about the nature of suspense, uh, the purpose of foreshadowing, or how you do foreshadowing and that sort of thing. And so some of the people who would be coming to these 
conventions would be coming to hear and listen or have a chance to maybe talk with you or one of the other writers that they've they've been reading, but also because they might have aspirations as writers as well. And so sort of have these forums to talk about there's always there are always a great many people within with any within any literary yes. uh, establishment <laughs> that who are trying to to write a novel and so certainly they come to try to get uh not only to meet editors and agents and that sort of thing but also to get um have intimate one-on-ones with writers that they know and admire to try to get uh, a little information on how how best they can learn to do it because it seems like a very specialized awp Mm-hmm. You know, like a very, like a specialization. One of one of those conferences. Mystery is a genre. Yes. And uh, how the, do you feel about that idea of having like is a genre? This is probably the <laughs> very boring question. <laughs> I feel like I am a crusader for genre, <laughs> but what what do you feel about it? Well, it's really interesting. You can look at genre from from two points of view. I mean, uh, I. I I mean, I can take a snooty point of view and say... Well, go ahead. Do that one first. Okay, I'll do, I'll do the snooty me first. You know, I might even try to do a Boston accent with that. No, I, I won't go that far. I'd be, I'd be helpless in that effort. But um, if you... If, for example, you you may you know on a, on the dark in the dark night of your soul think that well I'm more of a really of a literary writer than I am say a whodunit writer or or certainly a, in my case I don't write violence and I don't write um, hard boiled detective stories or that sort of thing and so you know on those sort of dark nights you might think well we really maybe I should be be in the sort of the general fiction and then you realize that, that in terms of the business of of, of publishing that would be a horrible horrible mistake because because most people go into a store, and if they're mystery readers, they go to the mystery section. They don't go to general section, general fiction section. And so, when you go into the general fiction, there might be 160 titles in that store, and many of them are going to be first novelists. And very often, if a person is not coming to buy the new John Updike or or buy the latest of one particular author, then they don't really look at any of the other books because they know nothing about them. They can't really tell from flap copy either. Whereas if you're if you're in your genre you're you're up against 26 other authors uh, per month or something like that and you also all already winnowed uh, the, the the type of person who's coming to look the disadvantage however to put it on the other side is uh, never actually taken seriously as a writer number one or that that can certainly be party not, not a real writer you're a genre writer uh, and yeah. So, what, yeah, what is that? How does I think that it, manifest itself? Like, and what do you do to? Uh, I think it's manifest itself in uh, very often in in reviews. They have a a section of the review where they put the genre writers, whether whether it be science fiction or mystery or or any of that sort of thing, and then they'll have general fiction outside that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I very often bounce bounce back and forth depending upon what the reviewer. Uh, who got the assignment to to review me on that particular occasion? If it was someone in general fiction, then it'll be in general fiction. Sometimes newspapers have um, reviewers who only review, uh, say, mystery. And uh, New York Times is pretty much like that. For example, uh, Marilyn Stasio pretty much does. Uh, it used to be Newgate Calendar, and but they have that in a section. It doesn't mean that I'm not reviewed outside that section because I because occasionally I am. I think it just really. It really depends. The other issue also is that is that many mainstream novels, and of course you're going to get mystery writers saying that Dostoevsky was a mystery writer too. But in fact, many of the most po- of the of the of the really popular literary novels, Snow Falling on Cedars, for example, is is a is a mystery. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Or mysteries, I should say. Yes, yeah. I think he was he was aware that he was working within the genre with the, the courtroom and the, I think, and the mystery framework to work in. But by and large, I think he was reviewed outside that. He was, uh, exactly. Outside that framework. And I think what he brought to the mystery which uh, I try to do, and which a lot of mystery writers are trying to do now, are those aspects of the novel which are novelistic, that is to say, which are literary. And that happens to do, that happens to be uh, atmosphere and character and really being about something, the moral life of man and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. I, I always say that if I don't know who it was done to, then I couldn't care less about who done it. Exactly. Like the yeah. If there isn't the character isn't developed, then what's where's the pathos in the, the either the crime or the mystery or the suspense? Is that is that's that true? And saying? you you say that because you're you're a, a reader, a serious reader. There are, uh, and I don't mean the other kind of readers aren't serious, but there is there is a kind of reader who really reads for the puzzle, and that's a kind of reader too. And they're they're perfectly that's perfectly that's perfectly okay. And there ought to be books for them. And there are people who read action thrillers, and that's what they read. I'm happy that anybody reads a book, you know, so it really doesn't matter to me why. Right, right. Well, okay, well, on that note, let's let's take a short break, Tom. Um, uh, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Thomas H. Cook and his novel, Master of the Delta. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in uh, today on Living Writers on WCBN-FM, um, we've got Thomas H. Cook in the studio and his latest a suspense uh, mystery, Master of the Delta. Um, and we we're talking about like the working within uh, a category of genre and, out, you know, and outside of it, because I thought it was interesting because, um, Tom, one of the first things I saw was that Booklist had, had given you a starred review here. Um, and it says... Uh, you know, the suspense built slowly but inexorably, uh, helped along with liberal doses of foreboding from Branch, who's the narrator, Jack Branch, um, oh, the reminiscing narrator, um, near-perfect resonance. So we've got all this going on. And then uh, then he says, Ed, you know, Cook and Edgar Winner is known as a crime writer, but his storytelling has grown better and better as his works have become less formulaic. Um, it's a novel that just happens to be about crime. So... When you read something, or do you read the reviews? Or oh yes, read? absolutely. Okay. So when you read something like that, Tom, then like you know, some sort of way, like, uh, do you recognize a like a truth in that? Do you say, well, yeah, there was a time when I was writing in more of like a, a like a, a formula structure, or, or or do you feel like you are 
kind of pushing beyond that now. Do you see that as, is that reviewer saying something about, has he, has he or she read your other books? Is that any truth to that? Um, prob- probably he or she has. By the time you've written a lot of books, very often the reviewers are, are fairly familiar with your work. They haven't read everything. but uh, I've got Red Leaves coming later this week. Not that oh, it's helpful okay. now. but <laughs> well, I hope you think that you're in for a good experience. I'm sure I do. Um, but I, I uh, tried to be formulaic in, in, in the beginning. My first novel, um, I didn't think was a mystery. That was Blood, uh, Blood Innocence. Blood yes. Innocence. Yeah, right. With Playboy. That's odd, uh, yeah, oddly enough. Right. Uh, Mark Smith once said that publishing a book is a miserable experience. And uh, boy, it was for me. That that was. Yeah, you'll see no, uh, no, no more Playboy. Uh, no, that was no, the last that was, one. Yeah, exactly. What was so miserable about it then? Well, that, it wasn't my title. I felt everything that could possibly go wrong in the publication of that book went wrong. And yet it was one of those human experiences where probably because everything went wrong, something went right. And it went... Um, it... it um, got nominated for an Edgar as a result. Um, but after that, I was sort of thought of as a mystery writer, even though my second novel, The Orchids, was not a mystery at all. My fourth novel, Eleanor, was not a mystery. The City When It, Ra- the City when it Rains is not a mystery. Uh, so I continued to write mainstream fiction. But because I wanted to make a living, I'm not, I'm not a trust fund baby, I, so I wanted to make a living as a writer. Uh, a friend of mine gave me some very good advice, or normally it would be good advice. It, uh, he said, you should write a series because that's really the way the way to do it. And so I actually did try to do that. I wrote three novels, and when I got to the last novel, I said to my wife, if I ever write a book worse than this, I'm going to stop, because it just wasn't my thing. I, I wasn't a good plotter in terms of the sort of classic detective story of moving from, from this witness to that witness who moves you to that witness in sort of this lockstep formula. And it's a great formula. I mean, it's actually the way it often really happens in life. It's just that for me... It, it wasn't organic, and I wasn't really good at it. And it really wasn't until a mortal memory that I learned the way I wanted to write mysteries. And after that, there were hardly any police in my stories. And how was uh, that? Like, what was the way that you wanted to write mysteries? I thought I was better at having the narrator already know what was going on. That brings me to what I wanted to talk with you about, like the, the question of the chronology within mm-hmm. the structural choices. Because cause when we first, when we get to chapter, the first page of chapter one, we're sort of set in the 1954 mm-hmm. moment. But then soon, Jack Branch, the the, the reminiscing narrator, right. as, as Booklist right. <laughs> calls him. Which is what he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we, then we, suddenly, we see that he's... He's an old he's he's an old man now. Yes, and I do that I do that for several reasons. Um, I was never influenced by mystery writers. I grew up in a southern uh, southern school, southern public schools, which at that time taught classical literature. They they so did who not. Were, who were you influenced by then? Uh, I was actually influenced probably more by Dostoevsky, more by uh, Conrad was a huge influence, and and Hemingway, Faulkner, and Fitzgerald. I mean, I read the classics of American literature and British literature. And uh, those were the, that those were the novelists as far as I was concerned. Also Edith Wharton, I th- Ethan Fromm just knocked me out the first time I read it. And that sort of thing. 
thing, and I never, I ne- I didn't read. I was not familiar with um, mystery writers as a genre. No, so no, not even like uh, Agatha Christie. I knew or who Raymond she Chandler was, but or... Raymond Chandler was a wonderful writer. And when I read him, uh, you know, I mean that that was a writer. You know, Dashiell yes. Hammett is a yes. writer, and uh, and I enjoyed I enjoyed those books. But because I read them later, as I've read many many mysteries and enjoyed them very much later, they weren't formative formative simply because I didn't read them when I was young and when I was learning to be a writer. Uh, in that case, it was always um, these more classic American writers. And so I didn't know how to work out that formula, and I wasn't very good at it, by which you go from A to B to a solution. And so I found that the best route for me was to avoid the investigative sort of method. And also, that would allow me to write a meditative novel. That is to say, to me, uh, much of human life is about the struggle to outrun regret. And when you don't succeed in that, and you look back, and you try to ask where you're... So- where did things go wrong, as where what many of my characters do, then that, that really becomes a book about the mystery. I mean, to get a little pretentious for a moment, that becomes a book about the mystery of life, not just the solution of a crime or, or something like that. But at the same time, I like to write about people in crisis, and crime is, is people in crisis. And uh, I would never write about an English major caught in an advertising uh, firm, you know, and going through the angst of deciding whether he should move to Westchester or, or to Montauk. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not my thing. I like people who are really in not life-and-death situations physically. Most of my characters are never in that kind of situation, but in life-and-death situations morally. Mm, I see. Okay. Well, that we, you mentioned crime, and so I, I wanted to ask you, since you're... It, you know, it's known as a crime writer then, or is there, what are the differences with, cause there's the true crime, mm-hmm. right? And then we have mystery and then it seems like we have thriller suspense, almost like, uh, you do. They're even, I mean, they're even begin to fra- being to fracture in their organizations. Thriller writers now have their own organization, uh, uh, cozy writers do not, but cozy writing is is really uh, also uh, writing within the mystery genre. And that cozy, that, cozies are are books that follow in the tradition, as I understand it, of, of Agatha Christie. They're they're puzzle mysteries, and and you know that's, that's you know, that when, sort of thing. When you said puzzle mystery, yeah. I wondered if you meant like the Agatha Christie yeah. sort of that kind type. of thing, okay. where you know it's Mrs. Marple finding out if the vicar did it, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And uh, very pleasant can, can be quite quite lovely writing. Uh, but it is a it is a, a type of story. You're going to get this much sex, but not that much sex, you know, and this much violence, but off stage, not that much. And so it it appeals to a particular kind of reader. Although a friend of mine, who's really very very knowledgeable in this in this business, tells me that it's sort of a myth to believe that a person who writes who reads a, a say hard boil, which is the hard boil yes. detective, yes, um, th- never reads a cozy. It just isn't true, he says, and then or they never read a sort of a Snow Falling on Cedars type of book or or that sort of thing or a thriller because like by 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 like sort of the hard boiled do you mean something like Jim Thompson yeah, yeah I for, mean he's uh, famously hard boiled yeah. you know and that, and that sort of thing where you usually have a down at the heel private eye who's uh, looking for a blonde you know right and that's the stereotype of it I'm sure they're they're where well, that's not the case but I mean that kind of thing is is really a stereotypical kind of character yeah. so with the true crime because you also help like with let's see it looks like Otto Penzler mm-hmm. uh, who who owns the 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 New York uh, the mis the mysterious uh, bookshop in New York City. Um, so you and you both 
edit Best American Crime Writing. At least you have since, it looks like 2000 up through 2000. Yeah, the first one I think actually came out in 2000. Uh, it was, it was uh, 2000 came out in, two, I think it was 2001, because I remember uh, September 11th happened. And I remember writing in the introduction that we had, had no idea when we began that one crime would so um, be so much c- catastrophic than, than any other and, and what to do about that, because so much crime writing after September 11th had to do with terrorism and all that sort of thing. So we chose an absolutely stunning piece of writing about the actual description of 9-11 by Nancy, Nancy Gibbs, who I think went on to win the National uh, Reporting Award. But um, mm. I've written two nonfiction books about crime, and, and we edit this series where I, we pick the very best crime writing uh, from across the country and put it into a yearly anthology. And so, so you, so, so you're fine with the mantle of true crime writer as well, then. Oh, because yes. that's that's what those nonfiction books were then: early graves and blood echoes. Yes, true crime, and then it says a father story. As, yes. as told by Lionel Dahmer. So that would be Jeffrey Dahmer's father. Yeah, but it it really is about uh, Mr. Dahmer. It is really not about Lionel. It really isn't about uh, Jeffrey. It doesn't reconstruct his crimes or anything like that. So what was your motivation for doing that book? Like what led you to that, Tom? I had uh, been living in Spain and uh, I came back um, and I s- said to my agent, I really love writing nonfiction, and I hadn't written nonfiction in a while, and, and so I said, if you just be on the lookout for any, any nonfiction, and he immediately said, well, I, I know you've been in uh, abroad for a long time, but have you heard of Jeffrey Dahmer? And I said, oh, yeah, but I don't want to write Jeffrey Dahmer, and uh, that's, there's nothing interesting in that, that kind of crime. There's no motivation, really, except the psychopathic one that we're never going to really be able to understand. But uh, Lionel Dahmer was a really interesting person, and his relationship with his son was very was very touching. And uh, after having met him, I decided to do that book. It is not at all a, a rendering of, of Jeffrey Dahmer's crime. It's it's about a man really attempting to come to terms with with being the father of Jeffrey Dahmer. Actually, Hence it's one title. of my favorite books. But, yeah, really, yeah. really, and of my it, own because you feel like it's. Mm-hmm. That you've you've managed to capture some truth about him as a human being is that I, I yeah, should ask I, you why instead of <laughs> sometimes wondering. sometimes something writ large uh, brings the smaller details of other people's experience into into better focus rather than looking small and when you think of a person trying to go back over his or her parenthood um, yeah and trying to find out where what they did right and what they did wrong. And any of us who are parents uh, trying to help our children move through this wilderness know that it's almost impossible to understand that process. And so, in, in, and I thought Lionel was really making an effort to uh, to do that. Because so often, with not, not having read that book, A Father's Story of yours, um, uh, and not being familiar with where sort of the the blame sort of landed, mm-hmm. you often hear like, well, something that that they were unloved as children or oh, something, sure. you know. Of course, so if this, everyone who was unloved with children, uh, unloved <laughs> as children, you know, ended up was a sociopath, was a sociopath, <laughs> and we would be in big, big trouble. Well, I mean, there have been great changes in American well, culture, and by great, <laughs> I mean on scale rather than. Well, that, that, that's true too, but I think one of the horrible mysteries of parenthood, and I am a parent, is to is to see children that seem to be even within the same family raised in exactly the same way by exactly the same rules 
rules and react to those those rules and that parenthood differently simply because the influences outside of parenthood are also very great hmm. and and what they what they have as their uh i don't know their chemical their interior yes. being what they are bringing to it with the well i remember a moment when i wondered if i had done the right thing um my wife and I had done the right thing by bringing our daughter to live in Tom, on Times Square. And we had moved from a fairly idyllic uh, sort of world into Times Square. And Times Square at that time was Times Square. Times Square looked like it did in Taxi Driver. It was uh, nothing but porno stores and hookers and, and everything like that. And I remember I was walking my daughter and she was just learning to read. And the way uh, children learn to read is by reading everything. And I remember going down 42nd Street and my daughter says... Soda, sandwich, hot adult action. (laughs) And at that point, it gave me pause to think if perhaps maybe this had not been a good idea. And yet with her, it, it turned out to be an excellent idea. Well, that's, I'm glad. Me, me too. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, there might be another book that she's writing yeah. on my father's story. Okay, <laughs> we're going to take a break. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Thomas H. Cook, Master of the Delta. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, it's Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today, Tom Cook in the studio, master of the Delta. Um, So what was winning the Edgar Award? Did that change everything for you? I wouldn't say that it changed everything. I think it it certainly uh, lifts your profile quite a bit within the mystery community. It's by no means... uh, going to guarantee uh, success, financial success in the genre, or even sustaining a career for, for a long period of time. Edgar winners, uh, Edgar winners come and go like National Book Award winners. So it's, it's not really a guarantee of anything. Of immortality. No, no, not at all. Were you influenced by Edgar Allan Poe, the namesake of the award? I, I, don't, I don't think I was 
influenced by him. I mean, I certainly read read Poe, and I was asked not long ago to to write a little thought on on Poe. And I remember thinking that the odd thing about Poe is that everything you read was so so memorable. You read so many books uh, by many many authors and you don't necessarily remember anything. And yet if if you ever read a, a Poe short story, you have a tendency to remember it. And I, I do find that I do find that remarkable. Did it's, you did you come up with any like like reasons why you think that is the case? No no other than other than I mean, in the poems, for example, I, I remember thinking of just that the repetition of the bells, of the bells, 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 that how courageous it was to do that and how that seemed authentic in some way. It's maddening. That's right. And he would often describe himself as inauthentic. I mean, as a, as a writer who wrote just for the magazines and everything like that. And yet, despite that kind of denial, it's, it's rather when Faulkner said, nobody but a blockhead writes for anything but money. And you know that isn't true, and that he didn't think that. And and yet, and, and every word he writes, you know that isn't true. And with Poe, those kinds of things of just being a journalist and everything, and you, you see that it seemed, almost seems like every time he sat down to write, something authentic really happened. So so it sounds like Tom you're also like a, a voracious reader. You're someone who's always always reading from from when you were a youth <laughs> until and and is that one of the reasons uh was that one of your uh, what drove you to pick the narrators that you did like the the Jack Branch is a teacher at a high school and his father um uh, on this Mississippi Delta in this small town was also a teacher at the same high school although they come from one of the plantation houses yep. and is it was it a way to be able cuz there's lots of references there's Yates there's Willa Cather right. there's you know there's they're just um, was it because you wanted to play with that, or did you, did it add like a, a a layer to something you were trying to get at with the the, the story itself? Well, uh, there, there are several aspects to that question. In, 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 involved in uh, Master of the Delta, in terms of the answer to that, is the character really is wanting to bring to a public school the value, the, not the values, but the advantages that he has gotten from a private education, and so he designs a course on eel, which he hopes to use to treat to teach these kids in the working class all kinds of classical references from Iago, uh, you know, to Tiberius, and, and give them in one course... And get them engaged. Get them engaged. And he thinks, well, evil will really sort of keep them busy, and that'll make them interested, and he's right about that. For me, though, um, it's, a little, it's a little more strange in the sense that when I was growing up, I did not read. Um, I was not the high school kid. I mean, I, I, who read all the time? I was interested in girls. I was, you know, it wasn't really interesting for me to read. I read what was assigned, and I did okay in my English classes. And when I wrote, I wrote, I wrote well. I always had a, a native ability to write. But I, I wasn't a person whose nose was in a book all the time. And um, I ended up an English major simply because I didn't know what else to do. And then. I was suddenly assigned light in August, and your, I was that your first Faulkner. I guess it must have been my first Faulkner, and I remember quite distinctly sitting, reading that, and thinking, "This is great. This is great." And I have no idea why or anything like that. I heard a violinist say one time. Why does she play the violin? And she said, I play the violin because I believe that when 
God heard Brahms' violin concerto the first time, he said, that is really good. <laughs> and I, feel, I felt like that about Faulkner, that he had brought something to my life that I couldn't get anywhere else. I couldn't get it in the movies, and I couldn't get it from music, and I couldn't even get it from poetry, but I could get it from this brilliant, beautiful, complicated narrative that he brought of Joe Christmas and even the sort of ponderousness of the of the imagery, you know, Joe Christmas, Jesus Christ, Christ figure, all of that. None of that bothered me. I thought it was just it was emblematic of this sort of epic storytelling that he did. Would you think it was you were able to connect to it also because it was southern? Well, Mississippi is different from Alabama, and also I grew up in the northern uh, foothills of Appalachia in northern Alabama. And so the whole business of the plantation and the heritages of the South with the big houses and the old families, which are very much a part of Master of the Delta, were really not a part of my life. And I'm not so sure that I could identify with Faulkner as a Southerner so much so much that I could just identify him as, a, as an incredibly skilled craftsman. For example, when I think of someone that I liked as much as Faulkner, I think of Melville. Mm-hmm. And then that Melville is in Billy Budd comes and up Billy often Budd. In, the, in, the, yes. in this novel. But do you think that's also, is that why you made the choice not to address race, like in 1954 in this book? Because it's, it's on the second page where you sort of make this, you say, um, well, well the, the, let's see. Maybe I should. The just... Negro Netherworld, and that's yes. that's the, that's the last basic mention of it. There's yes, and one, then there's, there's Morehouse one once Philip, who that's right. grew up in one of the that's plantation right. homes. That's exactly and, right. And but then, the rest. Yes, is that why? Because you were uncomfortable with that? Because it's it's poor whites, mm-hmm. and then the the rich whites. Yeah, well, my Those predo- yeah my characters. My my predominant experience of the South, uh, coming from the upper well, not the upper South, the deep South, but still not the plantation regions, not the Delta, and not not even what they used to call the Moonlight and Magnolia crowd in Alabama, which were down in Montgomery, and you know those people ran the state before the Supreme Court outlawed um, this uh, the, the the disproportionality of the legislatures. I mean, that was a huge ruling that the Supreme Court made that really tremendously helped the South in terms of the democratization of it. Not equal to the civil rights movement, but extraordinarily important. And we were never, my part of the South never had a tradition of any of that. We had small-scale agriculture. There was hardly any slaves. My county voted against secession. Um, that, as many of the upper upper mountainous counties voted against it. So that part of the South was never really a function. But I did feel like it would really be good to write a novel about the South that was not just drenched in race, that really sort of started before the civil rights movement began well, cause in earnest. Because it was earnest. class. It was class. And it was it's all about class, and it was all, and that is really, really what Master of the Delta is about. But and, I hope and you, it, you use moments to make your your narrator mm-hmm. very unlikable in moments of yes. class because he he seems to be like someone who, he, at, when he's twenty four years of age mm-hmm. in nineteen fifty four, he seems to feel like um, he's a, really a good person and he's kind of doing good, and yeah. but he sees it as that. But then he's got you, you give him these. In some of the conversations with his father, or with it, where he just you just see these biases come from him, he as, is a, as if he thinks, but he thinks he's good. <laughs> he is a, he is in many ways a uh, 
unreflective person um, who has become reflective. And so the narrative voice is, I think, good. Uh, I've tried to make it at least d- deeply reflective in its description of an unreflective man. And when he is when he is young, he believes that he's doing all these good things. And there's one kind of of, of good you know good things good intentions lead to you know to bad consequences. We all know that very well. But in his cases, he he doesn't even he's not even aware enough to know what his his good impulses are. And when they are challenged, because his good impulses yes. are so stereotypical. Yes. Yeah, and they're but, not authentic and genuine. And and when when he's challenged, you know. They they basically vanish. Yeah. See, he he seems to say there's like the evil vines start to grow yeah. within you, you. You attribute that that to him. The so, most yeah. important thing in his life is to maintain the the advantages that he thinks intellectually are bad. But once he once once they become challenged inwardly, not just outwardly, then then he begins to react uh, according to his class. Yes. So very. So interesting. Yes. So we 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 don't have race, but we have class. We have that, which is is something that is somehow often less addressed in in in, in novels here. So that yes. Yeah, so, yeah. but I wanted to go back to voice for a moment, Tom. So um, so you've got the main narrator, Jack branch um and then throughout the novel you have other voices that you allow to come in so his is not the only voice we get and you do that by using um let's see eddie miller he's um he's he's the one that jack branch his his vessel for good uh who he thinks he'll a wayward boy that he thinks he'll help turn and he's the son of a of the town's a town murderer Mm -hmm. um and so you give, and, and he begins to write an essay, and so pieces of this essay make make themselves uh, have a voice in the novel. And then you also use court transcripts. Court so, um, so what was what were your decisions? Were were those voices just as you were writing the novel, they were coming in, and so you f- found uh, like vehicles for them. Like Eddie's voice was coming in, so you gave it the vehicle of using this, this paper to speak for him. Or did you feel like it was? broke up so it helped with momentum to have these different I never actually consciously plan anything and um, uh, and yet when I when I read when I read the book I realize why those things are there but they're not there because I plan to put them there for example when the, the very first thing that happens in this book that you that uh, that is different from the voice is that you realize that a police report has been taken at some point that someone has described uh, Jack Branch on a particular day while he taught and that he has given and that this description of him has been given to the police so obviously something has has happened to make that day important and to make um, make someone make a police report about it. Uh, court testimony then increases the sense, not so much, I think, of the suspense as, as the knowledge, uh, the foreboding or the foreshadowing, where you know something has happened that has ended up in uh, that has ended up in court. In terms of Eddie's journal, I wanted uh, that was actually the most difficult thing to pull off because. Uh, it has to be naive to some degree, and it has to be untutored in some degree. And you're always, when you write a mystery, you're always, you're always fighting what the reader expects. And so in this case, when I, uh, when I have Eddie begin to inquire into his own father, 
what I always ask myself is, what is the reader going to expect to happen here? And then I don't do that if I possibly if I possibly can not do it. Now, if at that at that point though, you're still moving organically in the book. Dostoevsky said when he was once asked, Dostoevsky was once asked. Um, how did you write the brothers Karamazov? And I thought he gave a true writer's answer. He said, I didn't, the brothers did. And so when you're writing this book, the characters really are very much deciding what will, what, what is going to happen. And so over planning for me, it just, it just never, never, it never, ever works. That is, that is extremely unnerving when you make your living this way because you don't, I've been two thirds through novels in the past and not known how they're going to end. And but eventually somehow the characters find their find their ending. Well, let's take a break, Tom, and we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Thomas Cook, Master of the Delta. We'll be back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Thomas H. Cook with his novel, Master of the Delta. He, he was in town here in Ann Arbor to read it on Agatha's Mystery Bookstore at 213 South 4th Avenue. Um, Tom, thanks again for being here. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And so I hear that after you wrap up your U.S. tour, which is quite quite extensive, we were talking about the the mystery community here mm-hmm. in the states. You're you're heading over to to Great Britain. Is that true? Too? Yeah, we um, Harrogate has a a big book festival in Yorkshire, and so my British publisher is uh, is bringing me over there. Uh, uh, I'm all, I'm a little like that Tom Waits song. I'm famous in Japan. I really, do, I I really do much better in uh, in uh, England, France, Italy. Actually, particularly Japan. So also Festival America, and is a French festival. I'm invited to by my French publisher. Though that starts in October. So there's a lot of travel in the next few next few weeks. That sounds exciting, though. So oh, I love travel. And so how uh, 